0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music, and more.
1: It was a magical place to live and work. And it, it takes really just like the touch of a finger to fly across the space station. And you really wow. don't walk anywhere. And it's it's just so clear that every single thing that you're doing is actually moving us forward towards exploring the universe, living on the moon, and in preparation for perhaps Mars.
2: Fewer than 700 people have ever been to space. Only 276 people have ever visited the International Space Station. And only 44 of those have been women. That basically makes Katie Coleman a unicorn. My
1: name is Katie Coleman, and I am a former NASA astronaut. So, how old were you when you first thought,
2: "I want to be an astronaut one day"? Probably about twenty.
1: Oh, wow! I know. I think you were maybe (laughs) expecting. Yeah, like a (laughs) five-year-old Katie saying, "I'm going to go to space." (laughs) Well, and you know, I was born in 1960, and I saw the first astronauts being chosen and people flying, and and I really thought all of it was very cool. But there was nothing in that picture that made me think, maybe this could be me. And I think it really helps to see somebody who kind of feels like you, especially when it's something amazing, where you just think, oh, only very special people, amazing, Mm. get to do this, and then you find out that they're actually pretty normal.
2: Okay, normal is a very relative term here, because astronauts are special. Not only do they have to be excellent at the technical side of their jobs, they need to be mentally and emotionally excellent. Because think about what's involved in a mission to the ISS, International Space Station, for example. Not only is it dangerous, but you're stuck with the same people for weeks or months on end. And if one of your colleagues is getting on your nerves, there's nowhere to escape to. Oh, and all your friends and family are far, far away.
3: And if you think about that, you think, well, Okay, I can stay on an elevator with just about anybody up to the 10th floor, right? Yep. But could you stay on that elevator for a month with the same people?
2: And now take all of those considerations and think about this. In the next 10 years, NASA hopes to send people to Mars, a mission that could take about three years. That is longer, more dangerous, more fraught than anything done before. So how do you prepare the human mind for something like that?
3: These are people we're dealing with. These aren't robotic landers.
2: It's the central question of a new documentary called Space, The Longest Goodbye, and we're gonna hear from two of the people in it. NASA psychologist Al Holland.
3: It excites me and worries me.
2: And retired astronaut Katie Coleman. I think humans can do anything. Today, the psychological challenges of space travel and what that means for a mission to Mars. I'm Sana Adar, this is All in the Mind
3: of being here at the Johnson Space Center as you get to watch the wildlife.
2: Wow, I had I had no idea there were deer in Texas. Um, when Very psychologist cool. Al Holland right, joined NASA in the 1980s, he had one task.
3: Learning. My first five years here, I was just learning. And so he
2: wanted to know uh, how the organization either, could do a better job of selecting astronauts that would be capable of working in space for longer periods of time, because longer missions were on the horizon.
3: We were going to be flying with Russians on board Mir. Uh, Mir
2: was the Russian the space Russian station Guard that was built before in the International Space Station.
3: So the issue was, well, do we want to fly people for the first time in long duration flight without any support system at all? And do we understand what the issues are? And the mm-hmm. answer to both of those was no. And so what I was doing was just going around and trying to get all the lessons learned from the different analog environments. And by analog environments, I mean environments that are very similar to space flight or the space missions that we would have. So I went and I talked to the Navy, went up to the sub labs and talked to those folks, went out to the deep sea diving rigs and Antarctic stations to all the different analogs that I could find yeah. and talk to people and just asked them. How do you select people? How do you screen? What are you you looking for? What sort of problems do you have? How do those start showing up if you tried to do as a countermeasure?
2: And here's what he learned from those conversations. The qualities that a good astronaut needs.
3: Well, first and foremost, a self-regulation. You need to be able to regulate your emotions. You need to be composed under pressure. You need to be self-aware. You need to have a somewhat positive demeanor.
2: You also need to be able to think on your feet. I mean, as much as you can floating around a spaceship.
3: need to be resilient when you're struck with adversity. You need to have sufficient resources that it doesn't destroy you. And then you need to be able to bounce back. Recovery is just as important as the stress tolerance.
2: You also need to be able to get along with
3: others. Because everything we do here is in teams. So we want someone who can establish collaborative relationships.
2: It's a lot to look for in one person. I was studying chemistry, and I really, I loved science. I loved understanding. Luckily, there's people like Katie Coleman. After studying polymer chemistry and working in the Air Force, she applied to NASA in the early 90s. And she remembers what it was like to be tested by them.
1: We show up, well, they've gotten it down to about 100 people back when I was selected. We show up on a Sunday afternoon and go through about five hours of these psychological tests where you just, you know, you're answering questions going, what are they really asking? And should I be trying to answer it in a different way? (laughs) And I don't remember any of them specifically, but you know, I don't know if I was to make something up, it would be like, you go to the grocery store and you go to find spaghetti and it's just not in the usual place. And you find it in the aisle with the peanut butter. what does that make you think?
2: <laughs> wow, <laughs> stuff like, like that. Well, two of my favorite foods. I mean, you know I mean? <laughs> Some of the tests um, might have okay. been bizarre, but during the week-long interview process, there was one thing she realized pretty quickly. And
1: then you do have a really extensive interview with a psychiatrist. And, and, and then during the week, I mean, I think you're always being observed and everything during that week is a test. Mm. And and I think if you haven't figured that out that actually might say something about you as well is that you know if you're rude to the people that are helping you with the medical tests or the people who are trying to get you from place to place or figure out your logistics those are the same people that are going to be helping you. I mean, you're, you're always going to be somebody who's relying on other people's help to get you as prepared as you can be. And, and if you're rude to them during the first week, that's probably not the best of signs.
2: In March 1992, Katie was selected by NASA. And just three years later, in 1995, she blasted off to space for the first time.
1: And liftoff, liftoff of the Space Shuttle Columbia, catapulting scientific knowledge Microgravity research.
2: But I want to fast forward here to the early 2000s, because if you want to understand the challenges astronauts might face on an eventual mission to Mars, it helps to understand the challenges people like Katie have already faced on long-duration trips. And her third and longest trip to space involved nearly six months aboard the International Space Station. And the challenges for that began before blast-off. During the preparation,
1: so I trained for three years for my space station mission. Oh wow. and so it often have meetings with the with the psychiatric staff to just catch up on how you're doing and how's the training because it's actually it's not simple. You're training for six weeks at a time over in Russia, in Houston, and then also Europe and Japan and Canada. So there's a lot of time away from home, and actually, my husband and I lived in different places. And so even when I was training at home, quote unquote, in Houston, I was not necessarily with my family because our son was by that time living up in Massachusetts with my husband.
2: Wow, that's got to be really challenging. So were you getting the support from NASA for that or was it more you were working on that internally then? I was
1: definitely getting support in that way. You know, partly, I will say, because I ask for it. You know, I'm just very forthright like that. Like, I mean, it's not it's not just about you. It's about the mission. And if you can't bring your very best self to the mission, you're not doing your job.
2: But not every astronaut is necessarily so forthcoming. And it's no surprise why.
1: You know, so there's times in society that there's negative implications of talking to other people to figure things out or have someone evaluate you when actually... Boy, it's all good information. And, and during my time, one of the NASA leaders was very, very clear after the Columbia accident. He just made it so clear to people. And he just said, listen, all of us have been through a lot.
2: Just 16 minutes from its scheduled landing time, Columbia rocketed towards Earth, something very clearly wrong.
1: And every one of you in the Corps needs to go and see someone. It's not because it's just some empty requirement, it's because this is a lot for all of us to take in, especially those of you who went out in the field, you know, and and were helping to find all the pieces of the
2: orbiter. One field, human remains were found. Elsewhere, pieces of the shuttle and personal belongings- The Columbia accident happened in 2003, when the space shuttle Columbia, which Katie herself had ridden on less than a decade prior, disintegrated as it re-entered the atmosphere. All seven astronauts on board were killed.
1: And any any on purpose said very directly, you need to know that I am never going to judge your flight assignment by the fact that you are seeking counseling. Right. I think it's a very good thing to do.
2: After three years of preparation, and with that disaster in recent memory, Katie left Earth for the International Space Station in December 2010. The day after my 50th birthday, Her son, Jamie, at the time, was 10 years old.
0: As a kid going through NASA headquarters and going into the control room and learning about all the systems and tasks that she was doing, I learned so much about it to the point that I understood what was going on and it made me feel really confident in not only her mission, but I I knew that she was going to be safe and that there were thousands of people taking care of her. So I wasn't nervous at all, but when the rocket finally lifted off into the sky, I remember just feeling like pushed into the ground because it, the rocket is so powerful and as mm. it's flying up into up into space, it's just pushing everything back down to earth and it's it, it, you can feel it in your chest and I, I just remember immediately just bursting into tears because I realised, you know, my mom is just not on the planet anymore. She's she's not in California or Australia, right? She's She's so, so far away.
2: For the next 159 days, Katie would be living with just five other people. One other American, three Russians and an Italian. And she loved it up there?
1: I mean, I would have spent another six months, and my family does know this, (laughs) I would have spent another six months in a minute. It doesn't mean I was happy every single minute, but in terms of doing science experiments, knowing that the experiments you're doing can't be done anywhere else, learning to live in this microgravity environment where it's not about floating, it's about flying. I mean, so it really reminds you that you are at the very edge of where people are.
2: And you represent all of them? But as Katie said, it's not like it was perfect all the time. Working that closely and living that closely with only five other people, you're bound to get on each other's nerves at some point, right? Well, that definitely does happen.
1: I mean, there's no question. And at the same time, you know, the solution is actually really towards um, the mission. You know, we share a mission and it's so clear when you're up there how important that mission is and that there's no one else to do it but you, meaning you, the six of you. And so, there, you know, there would be times where I would just, you know, roll my eyes like, oh, really, you know. Um, and at the same time, I have to say there was never a time that I thought, oh, only, you know, only 90 more days mm. of this person. Right. I never thought that because it it simply wasn't an option.
2: But I will tell you, uh, one of the things that was at first hard for me with Dimitri. That was one of her Russian colleagues up on the ISS, who in fact had never worked with women before. Is that he has a very stoic face and, and it stays that way
1: often. You know, when I would say, you know, Dmitry, here's my great idea, and the Stoic face would look at me, you know, it's my inclination to be like, oh, he doesn't think my idea is mm. any good. Mm. He doesn't want to hear about an idea like that. And, and people would think, oh, this is typical Russian. It's not, I mean, it's really not actually, you know, okay. typical Russian. And, and it's just the way, he's a very businesslike person at work. He really is. And so I had to learn to literally pretend that Dmitri was smiling at me saying, <laughs> Katya, what's your idea? Right and 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 that really that seemed to work but the thing that really brought us together that helped me i would say really all the time is that when we talked about family his face just turned into the biggest smile and i mean he loved talking about his his son back on earth and what he was doing right now and showing pictures and and that's where we got to connect
2: mm.
1: and i just learned to remind myself that that's exactly who I was up in space with, was a person that could be both the stoic commander and the person who was just so happy to be, you know, having such a neat family and mm-hmm.
2: to be doing this job. Hi,
3: Mom. It's Katie. Uh, I miss you a lot and-
2: Katie was also in constant contact with her own family back on Earth. Hey, Mom, you want to play tic-tac-toe? Oh, cool. Okay, I want um, upper left. This is audio from some I mean, of their chats while she was on the ISS. It's from the documentary Space: The Longest Goodbye. If You
1: loved me more. You'd let me win. You know I'm in space and lonely. If you loved me, you'd let me win. Tic
0: Tac Toe. So every night we would have a call with her. And up where we live in Massachusetts, there's no big cities around. It's very quiet, so you can see a lot of the stars. And so sometimes the ISS would pass right over our house, and so we would be talking to her as she's arcing over our house.
1: I miss you guys that time?
0: And, and then oh, no. about the time that she reached the, the, the tip of New Zealand, which would take about 15 minutes from like our horizon over, we would, we would just be able to talk to her for about that long, and then she would like the satellite would go away, and then we would talk to her the next day.
2: This is Jamie and Katie playing flute together while Katie is in space. I
3: think Psychologically, being connected to your family, it's your foundation for emotional rejuvenation, for the ability to vent, (laughs) to to, uh, complain, and to hear back, and it's your sounding board, and it's your—it's emotional sustenance. And we recognize that within space flight, we want to keep a person connected with their main line of social support.
1: Those cabins were soundproof, and so that that really made, I think, life easier for me, because you could have your own little world.
2: But on a mission to Mars, which, remember, would take about three years, that kind of contact wouldn't be possible.
3: The real challenge with going to Mars is going to be that factor which sets it apart so much from previous flights, which is delayed communications.
2: This is senior operational psychologist at NASA, Dr. Al Holland again.
3: The fact of delayed communications is actually much more important than duration because people have been deployed to war zones, et cetera, for long periods akin to what a Mars mission might be. But it's the ability to communicate or to stay connected with home that's the key. So that's going to be the big challenge for for the psychology, the behavioral people.
2: Because real-time connection, like you said, won't be possible. What would be possible? Like how delayed would we
3: be talking? You're looking at a delay of about 20 minutes each way. Wow, okay. So that means you could say hi, and they could hear you say hi in 20 minutes, and they could say hi there, back, and you'll hear the reply in another 20 minutes. So once you say hi, you're gonna hear their reply 40 minutes later.
1: You want the other person to be okay when you're not with them, but then I I think there's a fear of, what if they're so okay that they don't need me Mm. anymore? I mean, not even in terms of finding someone else, but just what if it didn't really matter to them that I was gone? And that's what I think will be the hardest thing about Mars, is what are the conversations you don't get to have with that long, long delay? Yeah. Because you don't have them. What happens? What doesn't happen?
2: There's also the very plausible scenario that communications between Earth could be lost altogether. After all, Mars is an average of 225 million kilometers away. And really, there are so many other factors that need to be worked through for a possible mission to Mars. Putting aside the engineering feat of it all, like here's a snapshot of what else could affect the well-being of crew, who would be traveling for about six to nine months to get to Mars, spending about a year on the planet, and then traveling six to nine months to get back to Earth. It's hard to be
3: exact this far out. So the conditions, how small or how large the volume is, um, personal space, your ability to sleep, whether there's noises, the thermal environment, whether the work you're doing is sufficient. There's nothing worse than being underloaded with work in a small volume when you feel like, "Hmm, maybe I should be back home doing some other things with people that I love. And you not only have to get there which is a big chunk of your time. I think once you're there, you're probably engaged to the point where it's not as stressful, believe it or not. Okay. But the return trip might be a little bit long because you've already done the exciting things and you're on your way back. So reintegrating back into the family and the work setting after being away for so long and being with only a small group of people will be an interesting affair. We're going to have to take a look at all of those factors before we actually go.
2: How many people would be on a mission to Mars? How small a team would it be?
3: My guess is three to four.
2: Here's the thing. NASA isn't training astronauts for Mars specifically just yet. It's too early. It
3: hadn't been approved. We haven't gotten to the moon yet again. Sure.
2: But it is, of course, thinking and planning for it.
3: But... As we get closer and closer to a trip to Mars, we need to begin seeding the astronaut core with people who can go to Mars, because when it comes time, the space agencies around the world that are participating are gonna look around and pick from whoever they've got on hand because they want known quantities mm-hmm. to go. So we'll be looking for people that are very good uh, small group living. That'll be one big one, is they have to be able to live effectively in a group,
2: And the other key skill people on a mission to Mars will need to have.
3: They need to be able to do a lot of autonomous operational problem solving. They're not going to have the fast technical support that currently in low earth orbit they get when they're trying to solve a technical problem. And they're also gonna have to be able to do it in the event that we lose communications entirely with the vehicle. So you, you have to plan for the worst-case scenario, and you have to have people that are adaptable. And I would posit that self-regulation is going to be extremely important, The keeping your emotional stability, keeping even-keeled over a long period of time.
2: It all begs the question, who are these perfect people who can manage all of this? Because If you imagine the Venn diagram comparing the people who have the technical expertise for a mission to Mars and the people who are psychologically solid enough to take on these challenges, it can't be a huge overlap.
3: Right. This is aspirational, right? So um, if we had a bunch of these people lined up at the gate, I mean, I think the the rest of the people here would marry them or they would otherwise hire them (laughs) immediately. But there are not that many unicorns out there. Mm. And so what you're looking for is someone who has as much of this as possible or has the capacity to learn it and develop it. And that's Mm. we make a difference between things that they have to have at the front door versus things that they can learn over time. And that's something, as you know, we all learn over time as we get older. We hopefully expand our knowledge base and we're a little bit more competent at different situations than we were when we were quite young.
2: Yeah, yeah. And
3: it's the same thing here. The more experience you get in long flight or space flight, working in teams, the better you get at it.
2: NASA, as an organization, is also hoping to learn as much as it can beforehand. It's currently running a Mars simulation called the Crew Health and Performance Exploration Analogue. Since June 2023, four people, who aren't astronauts, they're volunteers, have been living in a 3D-printed habitat at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, and they won't be let out until July this year. The habitat is called Mars Dune Alpha, and it simulates some of the challenges of living on Mars, like equipment failures, communication delays, and more. There are also a number of tools and strategies NASA and other organisations are looking into that could help make a Mars mission less psychologically taxing. Things like using virtual reality to allow an astronaut to take a walk in the park or go on holiday all while physically still on their mission.
3: We want them to be able to do that virtually.
2: VR could also be used as a way to help them see their family.
3: We're looking at an approach that tricks the mind into thinking that there's a real-time communication going on when, in fact, it's not.
2: Small robots have also been developed that can keep astronauts company and share information.
3: Hello, Simon. How are you? My robot feelings are fine.
2: And here's something that feels really outlandish. Researchers at the European Space Agency are looking into hibernation, so possibly having astronauts asleep during the months-long journey to and from Mars. There are still lots of issues to work out with that option, though. And so, how far away do you think a Mars mission actually is? There's that idea of the next 10
3: ish years. That depends. That probably depends on funding. Okay. <laughs> that's a very, very prosaic <laughs> answer. Uh, but it depends on funding to a large degree. And it also depends on the lessons that we learn on the moon, for instance, containing dust. How do you contain dust in a habitat? So, that's part of the rationale behind going to the moon is that we don't want to just. Jump out there and and put our footprint in the dust. That's great. Yeah. But we more importantly want to establish some sort of sustained uh, living and working setting there, so that we can learn how to work in a less than a one G environment. What what tools are required? How do you manage dust? How do you manage medicine, et cetera, et cetera?
2: So is is saying you know a mission to Mars is the hope in the next decade? Do you think that's a bit ambitious? Then,
3: um, I will tell you that. My hope when I came to work here was that I would still be in my career when we went to Mars. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so I would to answer your question, I think it's, it's, it's a hope. It's an ambition. But first, we have to deal with the moon.
2: And given like it would be such a long flight and there are so many unknowns, can you ever really fully know or predict how a person would act on a mission like that?
3: No, you can't fully know how a person would act on a mission like that. You can't fully know how a person's going to act in any situation at all. Mm -hmm. And you have to give them the permission to invent how they're going to act. They can't act in a scripted way, and they shouldn't be expected to act in a scripted way because they are high-functioning adults after all. But we certainly can mitigate the risks That they're going to encounter and we can support the resources they have by informing them as much as possible of everything we know about Mm. what might come up and different ways to get around those then i think we need to leave them be
2: (laughs) yeah i guess overall like the thing that blew my mind most watching that documentary was to think about like just really how would a person function trapped in a a small rocket ship (laughs) with two to three other people around them, with no real-time communication with Earth, and possibly being cut off from all communications if things go wrong. You're just with those three Mm. people floating away. That's a terrifying thought.
3: It is terrifying. (laughs) It's terrifying thought. And there, you know, that is what exploration's about. It used to be terrifying to get in on a raft and head west mm. uh, across the ocean, and there's no land. I don't see any land out there. We're supposed to what? Just keep on continuing toward the setting sun. I mean, what's the point in that? You know, there are there are dragons out there on the edge of this map. It shows it. Um, mm. So you know, there's it's always been there. The dragons have always been there.
2: That's fascinating. That's right. Uh, this is just yeah the newest version of what humans have been doing forever, I suppose.
3: Right.
1: It certainly doesn't terrify me or or anybody that you might send, I don't think in that I think if you've decided to do these things, whether it's to climb on a space shuttle and go to space, which comes with its own risks, or this much longer mission, at a certain point, you're you're counting on everyone to have done their best to make it as safe as it can be.
3: You know, if people had, had said, well, I don't know what's across the water and we should just stay here in Verona, and, you know, and we have a good job and you, you're making a lot of money selling fish, and <laughs> let's just do this. And I think there are people that look out over the water, over the west, and they say, I wonder what's out there. And those are the people that you want to go look. (laughs) You don't want the people going out there that really don't want to go. But there's a subset of people that um, are true explorers at heart and um, are energized by this, and they will go.
1: You know, there's no question in my mind, eventually we'll be living on Mars.
2: That is retired astronaut Katie Coleman and senior operational psychologist at NASA, Dr. Al Holland. You also heard from Katie's son, Jamie Simpson, and all three of them appear in the documentary Space, The Longest Goodbye, directed by Ido Mizrahi. The film is streaming now on DocPlay. And that's it for All in the Mind this week. Thanks to producer Rose Kerr and sound engineer Simon Brathwaite. This episode was written, edited and presented by me, Sana Kadar. And thank you for listening. I'll catch you next time.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.